welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am great. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, activism, specifically a television show designed to highlight activism and activists, putting them in competition with one another for the scarce resources needed to affect real change in the world. Uh, the Activist, as it was cleverly called, uh, featured Usher, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, and Juliana Huff, uh, and it was made by CBS with the goal of pitting three teams of activists against each other uh, and measuring the amount of awareness that they raised via retweets and likes and clicks and views and that sort of thing, and then rewarding those who did the best job. Uh, much outrage ensued, and CBS pulled the show from the schedule. Clover Hogan, a woman who was interviewed to be a participant, told Vulture that the whole process resembled an ep episode of Black Mirror, uh, and that it was particularly scummy to pit the activists against one another as part of a televised competition, quote, coming from the nonprofit space. We're often all vying for the same pot of resources. Uh, each of us has chosen the, this path knowing it's not going to be easy, and there's not always going to be a consistent paycheck in the mail, end quote. Uh, but is that a bad thing exactly? As the Internet's Ben Dreyfus put it uh, in his newsletter, quote, what sort of soft everyone is a winner loser talk is this? Activism is by definition a competition. Activists are advocates for issues who necessarily come into conflict with advocates on the other side of that issue. And even if that somehow wasn't true, they would still be competition for attention and dollars with other issues and other outfits advocating for their own entirely separate cases and or, sorry, entirely separate causes, end quote. Um, to be clear, uh, Ben was not responding directly to Hogan, but to a statement put out by CBS apologizing for the whole thing. I have to say I'm very much with Ben Dreyfus on this one. Uh, look, there are a million causes out there. Uh, none of us has a million hours in the day to keep track of all of them. Shouldn't we judge them based on likes and retweets? and impressions. Um, of course, activists are in competition. This is just like a no-brainer. Uh, Peter, what am I missing? Why is everyone so upset about this? I don't know, man. It seems fine to me. No, I look, Alyssa, uh, people are, people what, are what are Peter and yeah, I missing it. about look, this? People are upset because they view the whole activism thing as like a, we're all working together in concert to like change the world. And like this isn't about competition. It's it's about being friendly. And, you know, look, there's there's some truth to that. And the the, the nonprofit sector is in some ways um, sort of sees itself. It maintains a self-perception of being less overtly competitive than, say, you know, uh, Coke and Pepsi are right, but there are competitors within the nonprofit sector. Uh, you know, even just even people who are nominally doing the same thing, they're competing for the same dollars and the same donors. Um, I, I guess I sort of, to me, what was sort of unsettling about this, uh, or was not so much the the fact that they were pitting these people against each other, though it is kind of, it is kind of at least like what. You, you, you like you have to ask like what is going on like they're gonna have like a climate change activist uh, like a you know probably like a a, a, a some sort of rights activist and prob and maybe like I don't know a save the somethings activist right like you don't know but they said like this interview uh, Vulture published this great interview today that was super useful with uh, activist Clover Hogan who she's twenty one years old climate change activist um, and. What she talked, you know, she said they were aiming for specific categories of activists that they wanted to feature, right, and to sort of fill slots. Um, but she also talked about the interview and how just how sort of how they pushed her to tell her story in an overtly emotional, super simplistic way. 
And to me, this is like, on the one hand, like that's not like that's that's sort of bad. And on the other hand, I looked at that and was like, that is exactly how all reality television works. Yeah. It is entirely, entirely about uh, about manipulating uh, the experience and simplifying it. And it has absolutely nothing to do with reality um, because it's just pitched at a sort of uh, a, a media, not quite not very smart watcher. Um, but isn't isn't that and like also to the me heart what, of what activism? Sort of, Sorry, I mean, isn't isn't the heart of activism though making an an explicitly in many cases emotional case to say like this is you know this is how this affects me it's how it affects you I mean I'm like I I'm I'm still not 100 percent sure why I should be bothered by this so aspect I think of it that um this show hit a deeply unpleasant chord with a lot of people because it to mix my metaphors radically. kind of walked into a bunch of intersecting buzzsaws. And the first, I think, is this sort of the specific nature of the competition. Um, You know, these people, the prize at the end of this isn't even a guaranteed large chunk of funding for your organization. It's a chance to pitch to a bunch of wealthy donors, uh, which is, you know, ultimately kind of condescending, right? Like if you're, you know, if you're competing on American Idol, like at least you get a record deal at the end of it, right? And there could have been ways to structure this that, you know, distributed some smaller rewards that in the nonprofit world, that in the entertainment world wouldn't necessarily have been an enormous amount of money, but that in the nonprofit world still could have made a difference to let um, the competitors try out different tactics and campaigns along the way. And it didn't ultimately put them through all of this literally for the possibility of nothing. Um, and I think that that was a sort of the, – the, the stakes of the competition were kind of offensive and frustrating for people who work in an industry that is about sort of begging for dollars and dialing for dollars, right, that who, who understand that that's the deal um, – but who were being offered in some ways sort of worse stakes for the amount of time than they would get through the normal fundraising process. Second, I think this collided with a big argument about sort of the nature of contemporary activism. And it's no mistake that this sort of blew up, blew up at the same time that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went to the Met Ball wearing this dress with tax the rich emblazoned on the back of, emblazoned on the back of it. And Activism is one of those umbrella terms that gets sort of thrown around to mean a bunch of interchangeable things when there are actually sort of competing visions about what it means to do social service work versus um, to do agi- you know agitating, organizing. These are actually separate things. Um, and so a, a broad-based movement may include people who are really good at producing sort of symbolic gestures, um, like a, you know, whatever you think of AOC's dress, it sparked a long, sort of week-long conversation about, you know, are Democrats actually taxing the rich? Is this a good way to agitate for this issue? So there's the symbolic stuff. Um, there are people who provide direct social services to the poor. I am on the committee for the Washington Post Helping Hand campaign where we pick a couple of charities every three years 
and write a series, you know, John Kelly, who's the one of the local columnists, writes a series of pieces about the um, these direct service organizations and encourage re- encourages readers to give. So they do things like alleviate hunger, provide furniture for people moving into housing, et cetera. That's also uh, like a, a form that can be broadly grouped under activism. You have organizing, which is, you know, going into communities and working to get people who maybe have a stake in an issue but aren't mobilized to do anything around it to be sort of advocates in pushing for a cause in their own communities. And that can be a long, you know, really labor-intensive process that involves building relationships and that is supported by grant-making or other sources of funding, but that is about mobilizing people within a community to care about an issue, to call about to call their local representatives. And then there is fundraising and grant making, all of which is really important, um, and which is, you know, competitive and can be zero sum and can be frustrating for people on both sides of the equation. Um, my sister has worked for a really long time as an arts grant maker. Um, and a lot of her work focuses on trying to fund sort of under-resourced artists and projects and get art into new communities. And, you know, it's, it's hard for her not to be able to fund everybody, right? I mean, one of the things that she is very good at is going out and finding more money so she can then turn around and give it to more people. And I think that, you know, on the left in particular, where there is both a lot of energy around a variety of causes ranging from, you know, abortion rights to climate, um, you know, to income inequality, um, there are, you know, big, really heartfelt debates about sort of the differences in tactics, what's most effective, what's going to actually produce change on issues that feel really pressing and urgent to people. And collapsing activism down to sort of a single begging for dollars program where you're not even guaranteed some dollars at the end of it, I think just intersected with a lot of other existing frustrations and conversations in the very communities that a show like this needed to tune in to watch. So I think that I mean, yeah, it's easy to say, you know, this show is simplistic, you know, activism and politics are about arguing with each other, but it's not even a show that's set up to, you know, pair someone who works on fracking projects with someone who cares about climate change and have them test their arguments on each other, right? Like, it's not the kind of sort of productive competition that lets people see both sides of an issue, test out arguments, see what are effective or even that lets people from different wings of a movement try different tactics and see what works, right? It's purely a an attention economy. It's like which cause, you know, has an advocate who's best at crying on camera. And that's really reductive at a time when people do feel a lot of political urgency around big issues. Um, and I think it illustrates, you know, both all of those political tensions that I've just talked about, but also the extent to which Hollywood has become really divorced from activist movements. And I think one of the things that was interesting about, you know, the 60s and 70s, as much derided as they are, is, you know, you had people who were high-profile stars who were very much connected to grassroots movements, right? I mean, you know, you have Sachin Littlefeather showing up at the Oscars. You have... You know, I mean, Jane Fonda, for all that people love to criticize her and make fun of her, was like, 
interested in being on the ground and getting to know people. She still is very much involved in grassroots climate work through her Fire Drill Fridays actions. Um, And so there was a much more, there was much more of a sense that folks in the entertainment industry were working in movements from the ground up and sort of saw themselves as participants rather than as representatives of a kind of international Davos class. And, you know, someone like Angelina Jolie, I think, does the sort of international stage stuff very well. But that's not the entirety of politics or even the place where the vast majority of domestic politics in the U.S. takes place. And the sort of gradual isolation of Hollywood into that sphere that is both very disconnected from a lot of the political issues that they claim to care about and where they have become sort of branding on a global elite's agenda, um, I think has been damaging for the industry's ability to gain actual political insight and put it into work in a way that's moving to the audience um, in a way that goes far beyond one-time reality show. So I think the, the problem that I have with this is that it is a show that, based on what we know, appeared to be proposing a show about activism that did not actually have anything to do with activism. Uh, and... The problem with this show is not this specific show in a lot of ways. It is the, it is the deeper problem with the entire reality TV industrial complex, which I just find like I like what you want, I guess, but I just find that stuff awful because what they were asking this woman to do was not anything that had anything meaningful to do with with the business of activism. It wasn't even, hey, are you going to be good at making enough phone calls and and going to enough events and raising enough money? It was literally, can you cry on cue? Can you cry on cue is not actually a, a, a tool that most or even many, any activists use like on a regular basis. That is a tool that actors use. And yep. so they were not making a show about activism. They were making a show about acting because the whole thing is just like, again, the reality TV industrial complex, the same thing that gave us the apprentice, which has nothing to do with being good at business is it's, it's just asinine. And I don't understand what it is that people like in this stuff. And I and I, I think it is I, I think it is uh, it reflects very badly on the companies that make this stuff. And it reflects very badly on the studios that run it and fund it. And it reflects very badly on the viewers who consistently tune into this crap. I think it's possible to design reality television show around skills based stuff that is genuinely interesting and fun. Like Project Runway is cool to watch. A bunch of the cooking shows work well in part because they explain what it takes to be good at something and design challenges in a way that actually test and sort of illuminate that. And this was just clearly not that. It's, you know, it's bad politics. It sounds like it was going to be really awful reality television. Yeah, this was not going to be the Great British Breaking Show, but for activism. Yeah. Uh, but I might watch You that. guys are, I, I, I'm, I'm like, I, I remain fascinated by this whole story because you guys have a lot of, belief in activism that I do not share. Oh, I don't have a lot of belief in activism. I I do have a lot of, like, lingering resentment toward bad reality television, which has 
just had a, an incredibly pernicious effect on our culture and also is aesthetically awful. Like it's just, it displeases me to have it on and mm. around and like to know that it exists. Look, mm. and I think, ah. I mean, I think doing activism well is hard. Um, but, you know, when I was in, still in college before I was a journalist, I spent a summer working for Evan Wolfson, um, who is sort of the genius political architect behind the campaign for marriage equality in the United States. And that was a piece of politics that relied on sort of every part of the activist playbook, right? Like there was a judicial wing to it. There were legislative efforts at a bunch of different levels. There were campaigns that were sort of rooted in personal testimony. There was a pop culture angle to all of that. There was fundraising involved. There was both grassroots and institutional pressure. And it worked, right? I mean- LGBT people can get married in the United yeah. States now, and that's a huge difference. But I've also seen a lot of activism that is just poorly conceived, where people burn out. It's really hard work. It's it's a lot harder than being a good chef or baking a great cake. And, you know, there's there are a couple of movements and a couple of organizational geniuses for them that come along in an individual lifetime. Um but you can't demonstrate how that works because it on a reality show because it literally takes years to build a movement and sustain it. Yeah, um, I mean, it, uh, it doesn't Alyssa fit in TV season. I currently work for a nonprofit. Alyssa has worked for nonprofits in the past, um, and when I say that I don't have a lot of faith in activism, what I mean is that I don't have a lot of faith in the kind of activism that like attracts reality show producers and looks good on Instagram and is mostly about sort of that kind of image making. Non the nonprofit sector um, is incredibly valuable. And there's a lot of stuff that's great in the nonprofit sector. Uh, and that is incredibly effective in the nonprofit sector. But it's just not the sort of thing that is gonna that is translatable to the reality show competition format. I don't know. I think you could get IJ out there and have them, you know, <laughs> we're going to say I mean, they win all the time. The one. thing is, they actually do win because they go to court and they win. It's, and that's, they, they and have it's a, great. They but have they win actual... the contest that actually matters, which is real policy change and legal victories. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a uh, controversy or a non-troversy to pit activists in competition with one another for the amusement of television audiences? Peter? It's kind of a controversy. Alyssa? It's... Like predictably controversial yeah. and dumb. Uh, it's a non-troversy, and these people should stop whining and get on TV <laughs> and do their do their make their seal clapping like you know videos for for attention dollars. You know, as the get out there. You know, Sunny. Given that this is current, this podcast is currently distributed by what I understand to be a nonprofit. Um, no, not true. No, the no, we're, we're, we're a for-profit. We're a for-profit ent entity. That's why all we're right. all rolling in. Rolexes here <laughs> and yachts, when, mega yachts. When do we get our Rolexes? <laughs> uh, well, this is also capitalism. Is you, you're the exploited underclass. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Same with me. Um, all right. If you enjoy the show and also Rolexes and Mega Yachts and who doesn't, all of those things are great. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com uh, where we're going to talk about our favorite Clint Eastwood directed movies, not necessarily Clint Eastwood starring movies, though there's a lot of overlap there. Um, and speaking of Clint Eastwood, uh, on to the main on to the main event, uh, Cry Macho on HBO Max and in theaters now is the latest from Clint Eastwood, uh, who, direct, who directs and stars 
in this movie about a cowboy who has to go down to Mexico to rescue the son of his former boss. That's it. That's the whole that's the whole movie. Uh, Eastwood plays Mike Milo, a broken down Bronco buster charged with finding and retrieving Raphael Polk, uh, who is played by Eduardo Minette. Um, he is a he's a kid. He's on the streets. He's doing cockfights, staying away from his uh, mother, Lita, who's played by Fer- Fernanda Urejola. I think I got that. I think I got that one. Uh, Mike and Raphael meet up uh, and make a break for the border, uh, the northern border, that, that is, only to have to hide out in a small Mexican town for a few weeks while they're trying to repair their car. Um, I, again, that's that's the movie. Like, not a whole lot actually happens in this, uh, and that's one of the nice things about it. It is kind of uh, slow and rhythmic and adult in a way that a lot of films these days aren't. Uh, I want to say a, uh, a few nice things about this movie before I explain why it doesn't work at all. Um, first off, it looks great. It looks great. I saw it in a theater. It has a. It is a classic western uh, in the sense that Eastwood and cinematographer Ben Davis take great advantage of the American Southwest. Lots of vast plains and beautiful sunsets. And the occasional rolling hill that goes into the occasional mountain off on the horizon. Um, Eastwood is frequently shot in silhouette against the western sky, uh, and it is uh, the the that that like kind of constant. Um, image, it comes up a lot as a, a very beautiful melding of man and myth. You know, you've got decades of cowboy roles, and he is finally literally kind of fading into the sunset. Um, uh, unfortunately, Eastwood is the reason this movie exists and does not quite work. Uh, look, here is the plain truth. Eastwood, who was 90 at the time of filming, is just too old for this part. Set aside that he looks like an old man when he's throwing a punch or honestly just kind of walking around. Um, to say nothing of the fact that he is like obviously not on a br- bucking horse during a couple of shots. That there's like a wide shot of a guy wearing Clint Eastwood's jacket and then a, a tight shot of Eastwood who is like on a rocking chair or something kind of going back and forth. Um, uh, more awkward than the action um, is the fact that a very attractive 39-year-old throws herself at him, just like it was like, sleep with me, Clint Eastwood, please. Uh, and he's like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. <laughs> and I just, I, I like, he, it's, he's, he's ha- literally a half a century older than her. Um, it was weird and sad, and it made me uncomfortable to watch in a movie theater. Um, Milo would have been a good role uh, for him around the time he made Unforgiven, but he made Unforgiven 30 years ago. Um, it would have been a good role for Arnold Schwarzenegger when Arnold Schwarzenegger was circling this role in 2011. Uh, But at the time, Arnold would have been in his mid-60s. I I think he might be too old to play that role now. Uh, There are a handful of actors I could see playing Mike Milo convincingly at this point. Liam Neeson, maybe. uh, Sly Stallone, maybe a Mel Gibson. I don't know. But Eastwood is just not one of them. Um, Maybe I'm wrong, though. Alyssa, you're the woman of this show, and thus a much better gauge uh, for the animalistic sexiness of elderly Clint Eastwood. (laughs) Am I overreacting to this this, uh, part of the the show. I would worry about breaking Clint Eastwood at this stage <laughs> if I uh, if I seduced him. Um, <laughs> he, I mean, yeah, he old. Um, and I mean, I like Clint Eastwood's work a lot. I like Clint Eastwood as an actor, as we will discuss. I like him as a director. I think he has interesting things to say about men and masculinity that are kind of like sexy and interesting, uh, as well as thought provoking. But yeah, no, he's old. Um, like even he's old. Even his more ostensibly age-appropriate love interest is still like thirty years younger than he is. I think. Yeah. Um, At least. And yeah. it's it's a weird note in the movie, which is too bad because 
one of the things that I thought worked really well about this is that it's actually, it's fairly funny in an understated way. Um, you know, there's the line from the trailer where he's kidding Raphael. It's like, you know, any guy who wants to name his cock macho is all right by me. Like, that's pretty funny and mean. That's a cock, uh, and in the cockfighting sense, yes. it's a rooster. Yes, it it's is a rooster. A rooster it's but a like, chicken. It's a movie about a boy with a chicken. <laughs> yes. But the movie is like consistently pretty funny on that level. And Eastwood is very good at that sort of understated humor. Um, and that's actually something I think that you know, for all of the accolades that have been heaped on him over his career, he doesn't always get credit for as an actor. Like, Dirty Harry is a pretty funny part. Uh, he's, you know, glowering and mean um, and, you know, not a good cop, but pretty funny character. And so the the movie is like... Dirty Harry slander. The movie's lightness is actually really welcome. And the fact that, like, for all of the, you know, that the setup could easily devolve into a Liam Nielsen-style movie where Clint Eastwood has to waste, like, 30 guys to protect this kid. I mean, he mostly ends up just, like, punching someone. Um, the, you know, the chicken is the ultimate hero of the movie. It's, like, it's pretty light. It's deliberately minor. And the ease of it is really nice, except for the fact that, yeah, it kind of looks like Clint Eastwood is going to break in every single scene that he's in. Yeah, I, the, the 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 rooster is very funny and like function as kind of an animated sidekick yeah. sort of sort of way. I mean it it is it is it is you're right, it's a funny movie. I, I, I don't think I, I don't think a lot of the humor works because I'm not I don't think the, the the kid is that great in this movie. I think he is he's not he is he is the weak acting link outside of Clint Eastwood's like age. His mortal friend. It's a mannered performance. It's yeah. yeah. I I actually think more I, when I was talking about how it's a funny movie. I was actually thinking more about, um, for example, sort of Eastwood's interactions with the um, the community where they end up staying for a while, where he becomes like this sort of de facto vet to the neighborhood, and it's like yeah, the Doctor like, Doolittle, <laughs> yeah, the Doctor Doolittle line, it's cute, it's yep. it's charming, yes. Uh, the, the, you, I, I, I do, I do enjoy that you mentioned his humor though, because they're, they're, uh, I don't know if you've seen the mule, yeah. Alyssa, but, but in the mule, uh, Eastwood does the dirty old man sleeping with women thing, except it's for laughs and is, is actually very funny and it works because it's like, okay, that, that's a, that's a, that's a, I get it. That's funny in here. It's not meant to be funny. And it really, it, again, I think it just made me uncomfortable. It, I was just like, you're. The scene where Raphael's mother sort of throws herself at him and is rebuffed and then goes crazy about it, I actually didn't necessarily read as a sort of a sign about Eastwood, like supposed to be like 91-year-old Clint Eastwood, we're supposed to all want him. I thought it was more meant to be a like this woman is crazy scene. Well, I I think it's Um, that as well. It's certainly that as well. And it plays more effectively that way than as sort of a genuine um, seduction. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that was sort of how I read it. And I think that scene works a little better for me, despite it's kind of like inherent and sort of unnecessary nastiness, um, than it does as a like, Hey, Clint Eastwood's still a panty dropper. Right. Um, but I agree that there's some dissonance there. Uh, Peter, what'd you make of this? Uh, movie? it's definitely the best coming of age story about a boy with a chicken <laughs> that I've seen this year. <laughs> Maybe ever. Maybe probably ever. Um, no, I I, I kind of liked it. I just it's I think it's not like a great movie. It's not 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to look back on this one five years from now and be like, wow, I really want to see that again. But I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, you know, what you talked about, Sonny, just sort of the, the, the excellence of the imagery, which is which is so simple, but so sharp and and just consistently uh, kind of beautiful um, and, and engaging to look at. I, I enjoyed the simplicity of the story. There's not a lot of complication here. In fact, not a whole lot happens. And yet it didn't feel to me like it was sort of slow moving and didn't and not going anywhere. Um, it, it actually sort of moves along. It's um, it's pretty tightly paced. Uh, it's about 100 minutes before the credit roll credits roll. Right. Not not quite a short, short movie, but just the right length. Like Eastwood doesn't take too long to get where he's going. Um, and it's natural. Right. There's something sort of there's something just sort of easygoing and, and human about this film that is a little bit unusual uh, in in Hollywood these days, right? It's not a superhero franchise. It's not an animated kids movie. Even something like The Card Counter, which we watched recently, is a film that is like, this is an exaggerated world in some ways that is like not that's heightened and sort of it feels like a genre piece in a way that like, yeah, sure. OK, this is definitely borrowing from the Westerns and there's some stuff going on that doesn't this is, that is not exactly, uh, you know, normal life. On the other hand, it feels like there's actually bits and slices of normal adult life in this movie, which you just don't see all that often. Um, you mentioned, Sonny, that you thought uh, that he would have been better if he had played this role in uh, around the early 1990s when he made Unforgiven. And in fact, he had considered making this film yeah. when he was 58, I believe, in the late 1980s mm -hmm. and decided not to. Um, he was too he was too young for the role because then. he felt too yeah. young at 58. And now I agree he is probably too old. The ideal time for him to make it would have been, I think, actually in the mid to late 90s, uh, a, a little bit after he made Unforgiven. Uh, but it, he is he does come across just a little bit too old. And yet and yet at, I think it works. I think his age works better on screen in The Mule, where he's really supposed to actually be yes. quite old. At the same time, he is so old that it's that it's genuinely novel on screen uh, to see somebody who is that old, who is playing a central role, right? Who is not playing just the kind of, you know, oh, here's somebody An who's in a bed. Granddad, and a, right? yeah. like, he is he is he's the main character and he's also not playing somebody who is so old that they basically can't move around, that they are, you know, that they're having difficulties, right? That's. That's what you play when you are uh, above 70 or 80 in a lot of cases in Hollywood. I can think of a couple of counterexamples. You know, Christopher Plummer at the end of his life, he worked into his early 90s. But there just aren't that many lively 90-year-olds on screen really ever. And Clint Eastwood, for all he is, yes, too old for this role and all he does and for all the, you know, kind of shaking and stuttering and like the fact that he, man, that dude is wrinkly. He is so wrinkly, but he's also he he is lively and he still seems yeah. to sort of have a, a kind of life and energy to him that I just deeply enjoyed sort of spending 100 minutes with. He is. I, look, he is the thing. The thing about Clint Eastwood is that he is still all there mentally. Uh, if you if you read interviews, he gave he talked to The Wall Street Journal before the 2020 election. And it was a pretty interesting piece that came out of that. Um, and you cannot be a director of a major Hollywood movie, a, you know, a 25 or 30 million dollar movie, whatever this cost 
without being all there, without like you, you, there's a lot of delegation, but you still have a lot of decisions to make. You're still essentially marshalling um, an army of people every day and, and you you are expending a lot of mental and physical energy just being on set. And yeah, those doing set things. days are so, very like, long. I, I don't want to run down Clint Eastwood as a as a filmmaker or as a uh, as a director or any of that stuff, because I think it you know, he is he is still very, very good at what he does, even if I am. I think some of his later stuff is hit and miss like Richard Jewell, which came out a couple of years ago or last year is the is was was very, very good and very, uh, very strong, very solid. And uh, I feel bad. I feel bad saying these things about Clint Eastwood because I love you Clint should Eastwood. feel I bad. Grew Sonny. Up, I grew up watching Clint Eastwood, but like at a certain point, it, like you just you can't play that sort of role anymore. Well, and I think that, you know, it. <laughs> May we all be as spry and with it as Clint Eastwood at 91. And Man, I'm happy I'll to be, be that I'll spry be, at 40. I'll be dead 10 <laughs> years before then. Like, that's just, but, you know. Yeah, I think it's, it is no disrespect to him to say that there's some cognitive dissonance in this movie. And it's probably a testament to his qualities as an actor that it works as well as it does, even given those limitations. Um I think that's. I don't think that's disrespectful. I, I absolve you yeah. of disrespect to Clint sorry, Eastwood. Clint. Sorry, Clint. I'm really, I really, I'm really sorry. I'll tell. I'll tell you guys my Clint Eastwood meeting Clint Eastwood story one day. But uh, it was like 13 years ago, and he was much sprier and more intimidating than 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 and he, he was, was on the screen. He was in his 70s, and he was in his 70s. He's like 78. So I mean, it's like it's it's a big difference between 78 and 90. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Cry Macho? Um, can I say thumbs up and also just make the point that I think that there is no sin in a movie being minor, right? I mean, th- there has been this tendency in criticism to sort of justify the importance of every release that comes out, in partially in an effort to get people to see it and also partially to self-justify. It's like, why are we writing about this? Well, you know, right. but there is nothing wrong with a movie just being pretty pleasant and this succeeds at the that um it's good to look at it's pleasant to spend time with and if it doesn't last forever that's okay popular entertainment is allowed to be a little bit ephemeral um i think this is a notch above ephemeral but um it's no shame that that's what it is peter yeah i agree there it's not uh, an epic it's not self-aggrandizing it's not oscar bait right And so many of these, like, here's an adult movie made by an adult for adults movies are, they come out at the end of the year and they are, they come out after October 1st because they want you to remember them when the Oscars roll around. This movie isn't that, it is just a pretty good movie, not a great one, but a pretty good movie. And so I give it a thumbs up. Uh, Thumbs down, sadly, does not work. Movie does not work. Oh, Sonny. So, thumbs down. Uh, all right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, uh, please make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on Clint Eastwood's best movies. Uh, we are we are Clint Eastwood fans here at the show, even uh, even if I'm uh, slagging him mercilessly, and 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 you can yell at me on Twitter about that. Um, if you enjoyed the show, uh, recommend it to a friend because uh, if we don't grow. Uh, we'll die, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, if you did, if you did not love the episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.